Father, we ask for you again to, to be admit, uh, in, in our midst and to speak through your word. Your word has power. It is your word to us. And so we pray that you would help us to receive it with soft hearts and um, with your spirit impressing these things into our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in the book of Genesis. It, the, the word literally means beginnings. You know, every view of life, every philosophy, every religion has to answer three questions. How did we get here? What went wrong? And how do we fix the problem? The, every philosophy, every religion answers those, those three questions. And the book of Genesis is answering those questions for us. It explains how we got here. A God, a loving God, creates a world as gift to creation. Um, what went wrong, our rebellion against that God and our stiff arm towards his kingdom and rejection of it and exit out of land and fellowship with God, the Garden of Eden. And then we see that God is intervening, that the solution to this problem of sin and our rebellion against God and our rebellion against his creation, in our rebellion against God, that that is... Um, the problem is being solved as a work of God in the world to be contrasted with the work of the people at Babel, right? They're trying to build their way through life, through muscle, organization, strength, technology. But God's next chapter, God says to Abraham, go, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make you a blessing to all nations. Through all nations, through you, all nations will be blessed. It's a work of God. And God has been working through this family, through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob. And now we're focusing Jacob and his, and his 12 sons. And you will recall they're, they're, the family has been in disarray. They, they sold their youngest brother, Joseph, because he was the favorite son of, of Jacob. They sold him as a slave to Egypt. He was a slave. He became imprisoned. And then there was this, for the last three weeks, we've been working our way through this slow burn reconciliation where Joseph is exercising. He, know, he knows it's them, it's his brothers that sold him as a slave, but they don't, they don't know that it's him. So he's got some got a little leverage, a little power in all of this. And so he's been orchestrating things and sending them home and having them come back. He's been in he imprisoned them, imprisoned Simeon. He gave them a feast, doing all of these things to kind of discern their hearts. And last week, we saw the great reveal where Joseph says, it's me, your brother. I'm Joseph. And do you remember how he reveals himself? It's, it, he, he doesn't come to them in power in that moment. In fact, he takes his power off. He takes the Egyptian bling off and he comes to them in weakness. He comes to them weeping. The, the text says, losing all control. The man who had control over the whole world, in a sense, right? Supplying the whole world with food. The man who, who had control over his brothers and was like, like moving them around like chess pieces. He loses control, and he comes to them weeping. And there's something to be gleaned in this. The path to community, the path to relationship, the path to reconciliation comes through weakness, not power. It comes through weakness and not power. This is surprising to us. It's not what social media teaches us. 
Think about our interactions on social media. There, the, the, the task is to display as much power as you have, right? You, you, you display the best and the best version of yourself. It's, it's the witty and the beautiful and the musical and the muscular and the athletic that do well in social media interactions. And that's the basis for connection in that world. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That the, that the way to relationship, reconciliation, and authentic community is weakness. That that's the way to live. Like Joseph doesn't, he doesn't lift up his thing and flex his muscle and see, you remember that gun show? Remember that brother? It's your brother Joseph. I'm right here. Or he doesn't like, you know, tap dance his way to them, take off the top hat. It's me, Joseph. He's weeping. Tears flowing, snot running down his face. He's lost all control. It's not just like the little trickle coming down. He's weeping before them. And he's coming to them in weakness. And he takes the mask off. And he says, I'm Joseph. Life on social media invites us to keep the mask on. You filter the pictures. You, you filter the comment. You curate what's presented. And if you prop yourself up enough in that world of social media, you'll find friends. You'll find acceptance. You'll find you know, likes and you'll find loves. And you'll get all the things that your heart Desires, you'll find happiness. That's the promise, right? Happiness, a fulfilled life there on social media. But here's the thing. If you, one bad post, one bad post, and the whole project comes crumbling down, there is a vengeance on social media. And if you slip, beware. There is no forgiveness. There is no mercy. You will likely get rejected, and your curated persona will crumble. You may say, you may be thinking to yourself, well, of course, that's, that's why I'm not on social media. That's, that's I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's dangerous. It's well-documented, all the problems with it. I, so I stay away from that. But isn't our life on social media just a nitro-injected version of how we operate anyway? Don't we always put the filter on, especially in church settings? Can I put this filter and that filter on, layers and layers of filter, so that we don't let people into the weak places of our lives. But here's the thing. That's not how community works. That's what the Joseph story is telling. That's not how it works. How, how is this family that's in disarray, how are they to be rebuilt? How is relationship to be restored in this family? The answer is, Joseph strips himself of his Egyptian garb and his power and presents himself weeping in weakness to his brothers. He pours himself out. That's how relationship and reconciliation is achieved. Listen to what Walter Brueggemann says, a commentator on this. He says, the power to create newness does not come from detachment, but from risky self-disclosing engagement. The power to create newness. It doesn't come from detachment, but it comes from risky, self-disclosing engagement. That's how you create a newness in relationship. That's how you create newness in your life. And so what we're going to see this morning is what happens on the other side of Joseph's risky self-disclosing engagement. That's what he's doing, right? 
He's taken off the mask. He's not detached. He's not the king of Egypt anymore. Now he's their brother, Joseph, and he's weeping before them. So what happens on the other side of that? Not just the newness of life that comes to Joseph, but the newness of life that comes to the whole family. What happens? We're going to see three things. Three things that come on the other side of risky, self-disclosing engagement. And that is, it's in the title. It's, it's uh, reward, resurrection, and refuge. Those are the three things that come on the other side of that. Reward, resurrection, and refuge. So first, the reward. So this incredible story, incredible story that we've just witnessed, reaches Pharaoh. And like I think anyone Pharaoh is pleased by the story. He, he's, he's amazed by the story. Who would have thought? What are the chances? It's incredible. And so what does he do? What does the Pharaoh do? Uh, chapter 45, beginning at verse 16. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts, Go back to the land of Canaan. Take your father and your households. Take everybody and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. He's not referring to pasture land. He's he's referring to city land. I'm going to give him the best that we have to offer here in Egypt. Best apartment complex. You could urban living at its finest. Right in the heart of Egypt. And you shall eat of the fat of the land. The best portions of the land. And Joseph, you are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones, for your wives. Bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods. For the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. It's remarkable. There was a big, big lottery winner a couple days ago. Like $1.3 billion. I mean, you know, how long it ta- you know how long it takes to count to $1 billion? More than 33 years. If you're counting 24-7 to 1 billion, it takes 33 years to get that high. And that's assuming you're not sleeping. You're just counting all the time. That's a lot of money. Jacob's family just received a winning lottery ticket. The king of the world says, everything is yours. You don't have any concerns for your supplies, for your goods, for your wealth, for your material things. Because we got you covered. The bet... The best of all that we have to offer is yours, family of faith. Isn't that incredible? It's remarkable. It's the reward that comes to the family of faith. And Joseph relays this to his brothers, and he, 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 he says, um, he gives them what they need for the journey. Let, let's keep reading verse 21. The sons of Israel, of Jacob, did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh. He gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them, he gave them a change of clothes. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father, he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt, 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, provisions for his father on the journey. And then he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, don't quarrel on the way. See, all the rewards, all of the best things of Egypt are theirs. And they're loading them down with donkeys and servants and grain and bread and provisions. He loads them up. 
And he also gives them clothes. This is an interesting little tidbit. Think about clothes in the life of Joseph. They played a really significant role, haven't they? Right? His, it all started with a piece of clothing, his father's garment, which was then stripped, taken from him, used as evidence of his death to his father by his brothers. Bloody coat. Remember, they bloodied up with the dead goat. And then, and then he winds up in Egypt, and he's, he's clothed, and he, Potiphar's, making, Potiphar's wife is making her advances, and she grabs his cloak, pulls it off of him, and he's running out. And there's another piece of Joseph's clothes, and he's stripped of it, and it's used as evidence now against him and throws him in, it gets him into prison. It's the evidence that gets him into prison for more than a decade. And then, all of a sudden, he, Joseph goes from losing clothes to getting clothes. Remember what the king of Egypt does when he sees him? He clothes him in his kingly garments. This is like a, a new day for, for, for Joseph. He's getting clothes. And now, he's giving clothes. To his brothers, the very ones who stripped him of his clothes. He's giving them clothes now in an act of grace and gift to them. And he admonishes them. Look at verse 24. Then he sent his brothers away and they departed. And he said to them, don't quarrel on the way. Don't fight. Don't argue. You can imagine. They've just, you can, you can imagine them quarreling with each other. I told you not to do that. Look what happened. He's in power now. Or, you know, Reuben saying that because Reuben was the one who said, don't do it. Or, or, or Simeon saying to Judah, I, why did we do? I didn't say anything, but I was thinking we shouldn't be doing that. Right? They're, they're going to be arguing. Joseph is saying, this is a very important point. Grace has been extended to these brothers. And grace strips away all footing for quarreling or quibbling, or squabbling with others, right? Because as it relates to the cross of Christ, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all all indebted. They were all indebted to Joseph, and Joseph extended grace. It's a moot point to bicker and argue over who did what and who was worse and all that. Grace had been extended. Don't quarrel. You have no high ground when grace is in the picture. This is why Proverbs chapter 20, verse 3 says, it is, one's, it, is, it is one's honor to avoid strife, but fools are quick to quarrel. Grace strips away the footing for quarreling. So there we see the rewards that come on the other side of this revelation and grace of Joseph. Now I want us to see resurrection. That's the second point, resurrection. Look at verse uh, 25. Re- wait, before I say that. Risky, remember, remember again, what does risky self-disclosing, self-disclosing engagement bring? The risky self-disclosing engagement of Joseph, what does it bring? It brings reward, but it also brings resurrection. So verse 25. They went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. He's ruler over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart became numb. He did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, Jacob said, it's enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. 
Jacob's son has just been resurrected from the dead. Not literally, but figuratively. He's been dead for more than 20 years. And Jacob can hardly process the information. He becomes numbed by it. And as his mind sort of catches up to reality, he's revived. He's amazed. And he says, I will go and see him before I die. Because Jacob is an old, old man at this point. And it's so fitting. Think about this, too. Jacob's not the only patriarch to experience the resurrection of a son. Remember Abraham? Isaac was as good as dead. And and figuratively was resurrected from the dead. Thanks to the angel of the Lord, the Lord's provision. I think God is trying to teach us something that is central to Christian hope. Resurrection. The whole people of Israel, all of Jacob's children, are are a miracle. They're they're, they're resurrected people because remember where they came from? Sarah's womb. It was barren. It was dead is is a way to think about it. That that word actually means Sarah's womb was dead. And and then it became old, lifeless. There is no life. And and God, by, by miracle, brings life into that womb. Resurrection out of death. This is, this is central to Christian hope. Here's the thing. This is what Brueggemann is saying in that quote. That risky, self-disclosing engagement always brings about newness. It always brings about resurrection. In, Christ, in the Christian economy, life always follows death. I mean, th- think about this. Um, let's say that you... Um, are an aspiring athlete, and you have a special coach that's going to help you out, and you get to, you know, kind of a, what, a private tutor, private coach, and you get to the coach, and you say, um, let's say you're baseball, and, and, and you get there, and the coach says, how's your fielding? It's really good. I'm a, I'm, an, I'm a good fielder. How's your throwing? They call me the rifleman. How's your, how's your bad? How, do you, can you hit the fastball? Yeah, oh, yeah, every time. Fastball is my favorite pitch. Can you hit the curveball? Love the curveball just like the fastball, right? Can you hit the changeup? I'm an awesome fielder, right? That's the reply. You, you don't, you don't want to go to the point of weakness, do you? Because it's a death. Isn't it a death to say that? It's a death to your pride. Maybe you're, 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 you're struggling reading and you need a reading tutor. And you go to the reading tutor. You start talking about how great you are at math and science and geography. All these things. And the reading tutor says, well, but how are you in reading? I know all my continents. I can multiply in second grade. No, but reading. How are you in reading? You don't want to go there. It's a death. But guess what? Until you die, until that little slice of pride in your heart dies, you can't experience newness. You can't learn how to hit the change up. You can't learn how to read a book. You, and this is how it is in the Christian life. We must die to these areas of weakness so that by God's grace and spirit and power, we're resurrected to new life. That's sanctification to death followed by resurrection. Death followed by resurrection. And, and this truth is reviving. I mean, think about this. Think about the parallels. Our Lord literally came back from the dead. He suffered. He was brought low. 
He was raised to new life, and he is now seated and exalted at the right hand, not just of Pharaoh, not of Egypt, but over all of creation at the right hand of God Almighty. That's, where, that's what resurrection has done to the Son of God, Jesus our Lord. And from his lofty position, just like Joseph is dispensing the wealth of Egypt, what is Jesus doing? Paul says it. He actually uses like the, the, the language of like pillaging in the war from the Psalms. He, he, says, he says that Jesus ascended to heaven and now he's distributing his gifts, heavenly gifts of the Spirit to, the, to Christ's church, to the people of God. And not just that, but we will receive every spiritual blessing. Christ's resurrection has brought about the rewards in our life. And it's also the means by which we're resurrected in this Christian life. Now, I want us to notice something about the talk of these brothers. It's changed. They are so uh, oriented around one thing and one thing only. And that is Joseph. They're not talking about the fact that they just got the winning lottery ticket. They're not talking about all the lavish life that they can now have in Egypt, all of them. They're not talking about the money, the donkeys, the livestock. They're talking about one and one thing only, and that is Joseph. Now, this is a change. Remember remember, Remember how obsessed with material things they were? They hated Joseph because of the material blessing that his father was giving him in the form of the jacket and the inheritance that that meant. And, and what did they do? They sold him as a slave because they thought to themselves, well, at least we can get some money out of this deal, out of our brother. And now their brother has lavished gifts on him. And all they're talking about is Joseph. That's the focus. Things of earth are growing strangely dim in the light of his resurrection, of Joseph's resurrection, his new life. And so the whole nation of Israel, all 70 of them, they're going to list every one of them in the, next, in the next verses that are not printed in your order. All 70 of them go to Egypt and they, they take refuge there, which brings us to our third and final point, refuge. On the other side of risky, self-disclosing engagement is refuge. And refuge is offered to the family of faith in Egypt. Now, Jacob, though, you'll notice, seeks the Lord in the matter. Because, why would he do that? Because going to the land of Egypt means leaving the land of promise. And we've seen this before, haven't we? Remember Abraham, Genesis chapter 12? What does he do? Famine. Famine hit the land, just like it is here. And Abraham leaves and goes to Egypt, but he doesn't go at the command of the Lord. He, just, he, he listens not to the command of the Lord, but to the command of his gut, which is saying, I'm hungry, I need food. And so he goes down to Egypt, and it creates some problems for them, for the family. So Jacob rightly seeks the Lord's guidance in this. And look at chapter 46, verse 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had, And he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Now, God speaks, God speaks to Jacob in this dream, and it's, it's, it's God speaking to him. There's, there's quotes. He's saying certain things to him. We've not seen this in a long time in the book of Genesis. The whole book of, the whole story of Joseph has been, 
moving around God's providence. He's been there, but he's not been communicating. He's been working through a variety of circumstances. It's been a long time since God's spoken in this type of way to, to, to God's people. And guess what? We don't see God speak again for 430 years. The next time God shows up and speaks to one of the people of faith, it's Moses at the burning bush. Now, maybe he speaks between them. We don't have it recorded, right? But the next recorded appearance of God speaking to his people, Moses at the burning bush. Think about that. If we go back in time 430 years, it's 1592. <laughs> That's a long time. A lot's changed since then, don't you think? Well, I think there is something to be gleaned from this. That God speaks to his people most often through his providence. That he works in our lives oftentimes in a quiet, hidden, oftentimes way. Or say this, not easy to discern way. It's discernible. It's not easy to discern. It takes time to discern the work of God's lives, uh, the, work, the work of God in our lives. I mean, l- let me give you an example just in the last two months. I was reading a book. And I've shared this with some of you. I was reading a book. It wasn't a hard book to read. Uh, I mean, it wasn't easy either, but it wasn't like real. Anyway, it, it, it was very easy to understand, clearly written book. But what problem wasn't the book. The problem was, me, for some reason, I just wasn't understanding what I was reading. And everybody, it came so highly recommended, I was like, this is an important book. I should probably understand it. And so I got to page 43, and I thought to myself, I, this is, I feel like this book's a waste of my time. But everybody says I should read it. I thought, well, maybe I should just pray for understanding in reading this book. I haven't even thought, 40 pages in, 42 pages in, haven't thought of that. Well, let me do that. So I prayed. I kid you not, the paragraph that I was on when I took my head up and prayed and thought Within two sentences of the paragraph, there was a sentence that unlocked everything that I had apparently not understood the whole time. Incredible. Now, you may say, well, you would have read that even if you didn't pray. Well, that's true. I I would have. Would I have understood it? God only knows. But you start... You start piling on experience like that after experience after experience. And you start piling it on decade after decade after decade. And you begin to see a story emerge. You begin to see God's work in your life. We have to be attuned to it. We have to be listening to the story that God is weaving in the world and in our lives. So, now that's really more of a footnote. What, what does God tell Jacob? What does God tell Jacob? He speaks to him, but what does he say? Look at verse 3. God said, I am, the God, I am God, the God of your father. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. It was a blessing and privilege of the, of the oldest to close the eyes of the father at death. I, think, I believe it's still, a, it's still a Jewish tradition to this day. So Joseph, you're not the oldest, but your youngest, loved, beloved, favorite son, he's going to close your eyes at your death, God says. 
God says, go. You'll find refuge in Egypt. And he says, you're going to grow. They're going to they're grow by the millions. There's 70 that go down. Do you know how many leave when they come out at the Exodus 430 years later? Some estimates are 2.4 million is how many come out. They're, they're going to grow all right. They're going to be a great, an enormous nation. And they're going to Egypt. Again, we've said it before. It's the power of the age. And God grants them refuge there. They're going to get to Egypt, and they're going to, they do get the fat of the land. They get the best restaurants, the best food, the best shopping, the best police force and safety, the best military, all the best, the best technology. It's all there. It's, it's, it's the whole world at their fingertips in Egypt. And they're, I mean, let's be honest, they're going to look a little bit like the Beverly Hillbillies there. I mean, these are shepherds. They're, they're country we had a, our daughter plays um, volleyball, and one of the parents on the team who's from the Panhandle, way west Oklahoma, um, the girls won a, a real upset in dramatic fashion. And, of course, they're celebrating, and they're jumping and hugging each other. And the mom from the Panhandle said, girls, act like you've been to town before. Act like you've been to town before. And I can imagine Joseph thinking as the family shows up, and they're just like, Woo, he's act, come on, guys. Act like you've been to town before. But they're going to be there. But here's the thing. This is what's going to happen. They're going to see all the glory and glitz and sparkle of Egypt, the pyramids, the sphinx, all the stuff. And they're going to be tempted to confuse the gift of God with, the, with, with God, right? To begin to believe that the giver of the gift... Um, takes a back seat to the gift itself, which is Egypt, the refuge they're finding in Egypt. And listen, Moses is recording this, we believe. Moses is recording this story. And you can imagine those reading it, hearing it, talking about it around the campfire, who got scars on their back from their time in Egypt, they're thinking, man, this is bitter. This is bitter. This is where our lives began. This is, we know where this ends. Yeah, it's, it's glitz and grammar. It's all the best fat of the land. But it, that's going to change. And you, can, you can imagine the pain, the wounds that this maybe opens in their hearts and in their souls because of their enslavement into, into Egypt. But, but that's the point. The refuge here really isn't Egypt, is it? It's easy to think that it is. Egypt, so the reason Egypt is such a great place is because they have the most food, because they have the Nile, because they have the wisest leaders in the world that can figure out how to tackle challenges. That's why Egypt is a safe place. That's what, that's what people, that's, that would be the assumption, right? But Egypt would have been no good had God not spoken to Pharaoh in the dream of the fat cow and the skinny cow and the ears of grain, and Egypt would have been no good had Joseph not interpreted that dream. And Egypt would have been no good had God not given Joseph a strategic plan for handling the famine that was to come. All of the, behind all of this is God, the real refuge for Israel and for us and for the whole world is God, our creator. Look at verse four again. What does God say? 
I'm going down with you. I myself will go with you to Egypt and I will bring you up in my timing. For the Christian, God is refuge. And we're tempted to place our refuge in other things. It's easy for us as American Christians to want to place our refuge in this wonderful nation that we have. Every time, I don't leave the country often, but every time I come back, there's this settled, I'm home feeling. It's wonderful. It's a great feeling. But don't flip that and make this nation greater than Christ, than God, our, our true refuge. Or turning this political party that has... Uh, concerns for the marginalized or this political party that has concerns for the unborn or, or turning, turning any political party into a refuge, they will disappoint. Or maybe turning your job, you look, at, you look at your neighborhood that you're in and the great school that your kids are in and the fancy car that you get to drive and you think, man, this job has been great to me. And you begin to think that this, the job is the refuge, or the political party is the refuge, or the country that you live in, or the neighborhood, or the state, or the city, or whatever it is, is the refuge. They're not. If you turn a gift of God into God, it will enslave you. Egypt's going to enslave the peop- God's people. They're not just going to turn their back on them. That would have been much better. They're going to actually shackle them, and whip them, and drive them against their wills. They're going to enslave them. That's where this leads. God tells Abraham, God God has been saying, in chapter 15, he tells Abraham, know for certain, this is undeniably going to happen. Your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, slaves, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, God says to Abraham. This is happening. So God grants He sanctions, he orchestrates their move. And here it's a gift. It's a gift of God. But the refuge is not Egypt because because Egypt is going to snap back with enslavement and power. And yet, here's the thing. Remember the Joseph story? He makes his way down to Egypt against his will. He lands in Egypt poor, suffering, slave. And through his suffering, he brings salvation to his people. The people of Israel, they're going to suffer. And, and, and God is going to, it's going to set up a dramatic story of salvation, not just for the people of Israel, but for all the world's slaves in Egypt, right? It's all, all sorts of Gentiles were grafted into the family at the Exodus. It's setting up a grand story of salvation, now, these are really hard truths, and the Scriptures don't give us a lot of answers. Like, why, why is God sending? I mean, sure, it's, it's life now, but it's enslavement for years and years and years. Why? These are, these are questions that there's answers for, but, but they're difficult questions. But this story foreshadows Christ, who came, suffered, the greater Moses, who delivers us from spiritual famine, who delivers us from our enslavement to sin. And it's His grace towards sinners that gives us life. By His stripes, we are healed. His atonement on the cross. Remember, remember Brueggemann? 
right? The path to create newness comes not by detachment, but by risky, self-disclosing engagement. Isn't that what Christ did? He didn't remain detached in heaven, separated from his creation. He entered into it. He engaged it, self-disclosing, pouring himself out, saying, if you want to see the invisible God, look at me. I'm the image of the invisible God. He showed us what God is like, and it all led to his death on a cross. He didn't remain detached in heaven. He came, to him, he came to us. He came near. He disclosed himself. And by his death, he invites us into fellowship with him. He creates a new community. He promises to make everything new. Isn't that what he's doing? It's creating newness. And it's how it happens. We get the same things that the family of faith gets in light of Joseph's self-disclosure and engagement and grace toward them. We get reward, every spiritual blessing. We get resurrection. If you're a Christian, you've already been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life in Christ. You've been born again. You've been made a new creature. And there's a future resurrection where all the living and the dead will, be, will come break forth. The dead will break forth from their tombs and be resurrected just as Christ was resurrected. There's resurrection. There's reward. And there's refuge in him. And all of it comes by way of Jesus' risky, self-disclosing engagement in the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your work for us. Help us to see it. Help us to taste it as we come to this table. Your death gives us life. We give you thanks. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.